her service. That's why I picked Ronald to do announcements. He says lots of nice things about me. <laughs> well, good morning. My name is Garrett, and uh, I'm one of the pastors on staff here. If we've not met before, uh, thank you for the, just the privilege to teach the word this morning. I'm grateful for our church family, and especially one such as ours that, that continually challenges and, and encourages the next generation. So thank you, and thanks to those who are watching online and joining us this morning. We're so glad that you're here. Let's stand together as we read from the book of James. We're in chapter 2 today, if you're able to stand. Uh, We'll be reading verses 1 through 13. It says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who loved him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme the noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful that you inspired James to write this letter. And Lord, we confess that we deal with the same things today. Lord, and we ask God for your help as there's partiality in our hearts and in our midst. Even today, Lord, we invite you to, by your Holy Spirit, through your word, change our hearts this morning. We want to be more like you, Jesus. In your name, amen. You can be seated. So as I began to prepare this message, I was struck by just how applicable and how relevant uh, we can apply these things that James is talking about to what we see going on in our world today. See, James was, was feeling dealing with a very specific scenario in the church, but the principles and the instruction and the correction that he gives can be applied to beyond beyond the one issue. So James is speaking into a context, and let me know if this sounds familiar, but there's socioeconomic tensions, there's cultural polarizations, there's there's abuse and injustices. That's the context of his letter. And these things had they're not only going on in the world, they've now crept into the church. We have brothers and sisters in Christ acting and behaving in ways that are completely unchristlike. And it threatens their witness and it threatens their unity. And as I was thinking about this, unity has really been on my heart because unity is supposed to be one of the many things about the church that is so attractive to the world is our unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. So we've been called as a church to unity since, since the beginning of the church. 
And the things that divide the world are not supposed to divide us, yet they seem to. So I don't know if you guys would agree with this, but it feels like the season that we're in, not just us, CCS, but um, you know, community, nation, even world, it just seems like a very polarizing time and it seems like there's a lot that wants to divide us and that wants to threaten our unity. I don't know if it seems like that to you, but when, what, I, what I see James addressing here, I think is so helpful and, and so important to where we are today. And I believe the correction and instruction we're going to see in this part of James is, is going to deal with some of these convers- difficult conversations we've been having and, and maybe some of the, just the tensions and the battles that we're dealing with in our hearts. So I pray that this will be an opportunity by the Holy Spirit that, that God would just make a little progress in our hearts today about these things. So let me just start off by saying to you, uh, maybe you're here this morning and you have in your heart a disdain for a group of people. It could be any group of people. In the text that we're reading today, it's a disdain for the poor, and perhaps you share that. Or maybe it's the opposite, and, and you have disdain for the wealthy. Or maybe you have disdain in your heart for uh, a race or ethnicity. Maybe it's black people. Maybe it's Asian people. Maybe it's white people. Maybe it's Hispanic people. Or maybe you have a disdain for the elderly or or maybe you have a disdain for the next generation. I've seen churches that are completely segregated that way. Or maybe you have a disdain in your heart for those who are not wearing masks. Or maybe you have a disdain for those that are encouraging masks. The list goes on. You could put a lot of things in that blank. And, but whatever it may be, my prayer this morning is that we would just see Jesus a little bit clearer. That we see God's heart a little bit clearer. And that we would either begin or, or continue to do some of that hard work of, of uh, fighting against these things in our heart. So, and then by doing so, I, my prayer is that we would be just endeavoring to keep the unity and the bond of peace. So imagine with me for a moment that you're sitting here in your chair waiting for church to begin, and in through those doors walks a young man, well-dressed, wearing $30,000 Air Jordans. And that is a thing. You can go online right now and you can buy $30,000 Air Jordan tennis shoes. And that's much more likely, right, in my generation than an Armani suit or something like that. Anyways, so this young man, he, uh, he works at Amazon, he drives a Tesla, and he lives in the luxury apartments that they just built right down the street on the Green River. Meanwhile, through those doors, just a little bit later, walks in another young man, This young man is not as well-dressed. In fact, he smells a little bit because he's been sleeping under the bridge next to those apartments on the Green River. And as you observe these two guys, you notice that there's a lot of people introducing themselves to the first guy, making him feel welcomed, showering him with warmth. And somebody goes above and beyond, and they get one of our free coffee cards and say, hey, do you know that we can get free coffee to first-time guests? Go, Go say hi to Stephanie. She'll hook you up, get you whatever you want. And then somebody else says, they're, they're determined, they've got, this guy has to meet Pastor Kevin. Pastor Kevin, have you met Mr. Sneakers? Check out his sneakers. And Pastor Kevin goes, nice sneakers. <laughs> Anyways, meanwhile, you, you observe the, the poor man, and not as many people are talking to him. And 
In fact, only one person has, and it's, a, it's an usher who's asked him to sit in the lobby as to not disturb anybody by his smell. And by the end of the day, the rich man has been invited to lunch with new friends. And at the end of the day, the poor man eventually goes, wanders off by himself, unlikely to ever come back. It's a sad scenario, right? A tragic scenario. But this is pretty much the scenario that James is addressing with the early church. It's not long after Jesus' death and resurrection that the church seems to have forgotten about that Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' teachings. And they're having a real problem in the church with favoritism. The problem here was they're giving special treatment based off of outward appearance. In this case, in favor of the rich at the expense of the poor. And here we are, a couple thousand years later, needing to hear the same things, this harsh but true and needed correction and instruction from James. So let's dive in. We'll look at it verse by verse, starting with uh, James 2, 1 through 4. Partiality and true faith in Jesus are incompatible. James writes in chapter 2, verse 1, My brethren, do not hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. First, we should notice that he's addressing his brethren. James is the half-brother of Jesus, but he's also our brother in Christ. And I think that's good to remember. I think he wants us to remember that as he points that out twice here in verse 1 and then again in verse 5, brethren. You see, James is concerned with the unity of the church, and he's concerned with the unity of the family of God, just as many church leaders, uh, big C church leaders are today. And he's concerned about the behavior of his brothers and sisters in Christ because he wants what's best for them. And his aim here is to address them as siblings, as brothers and sisters, in love. He's not just blasting it out there for anyone who's willing to listen. Uh, he's not being harsh for the sake of being harsh. He's not doing whatever the ancient version of a passive-aggressive meme would be today, if social media was a thing. So he's speaking the truth in love. And in doing so, he's setting the tone and he's inviting his readers, his listeners, he's inviting us to receive the word of correction with humility, not as this authoritative figure wanting to shame us, but as a brother who loves us. And I spent some time on that. I, I pointed out because I think that is so important that the context of relationship and love is so important today in, in, in this area of correction. It seems to me that one of the things that makes a bad thing worse in our day is that everybody wants to correct everyone uh, or anyone. And we do so from a distance. We do so online. We do so without relationship and without love. But James' correction comes with love. My brethren, do not hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Let's talk about that word partiality for a moment. Sometimes we use the word partial, and it simply is referring to our, our preferences. For example, I'm partial to this flavor or that thing. I was talking to my wife, and we, we never realized how partial our boys would be towards blueberries. <laughs> there are, we have a one- and a two-year-old, and they are partial blueberries. You would not believe the quantity of blueberries these guys have consumed in their short lives. I'm surprised they don't look like a Smurf, to be honest. But James, that's not what James is talking about here. It's okay to be partial and have favorites and when it comes to things. Um, what we're talking about here is how we treat and behave towards people. Partiality is defined uh, in the Greek from, uh, sorry, the word in the Greek is, is defined as uh, respect of persons, 
So we define it as an unfair bias in favor of one person compared with another, or favoritism. James defines partiality in even simpler terms. He says partiality is sin, and we'll see that in a moment. And we should not attempt to try to incorporate partiality with our faith in Jesus or justify it when we do, because partiality and true faith in Jesus are incompatible. And as we look to Jesus, as we put our eyes on him, we begin to see better and better and clearer and clearer why partiality and faith in him is incompatible. Verse 1 is one of only two places where James mentions Jesus by name. And in verse 1, he adds the title, the Lord of glory. It's an interesting title because uh, we don't see that very often in Scripture. Jesus is the Lord of glory because he is the full embodiment and the divine power of God, more glorious than anyone or anything. Amen? Jesus is the Lord of glory. And James wants to highlight that and make that unmistakable claim that Jesus is God. He's telling the church, don't pretend that partiality and your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus have anything to do with one another. Because Jesus showed no partiality when he died on the cross for the whole world. So there's no room for the two to be together. The two are incompatible. If you remember from last week, the verse comes, this verse comes on the heels of uh, James 1.27, which says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So our glorious and awesome God, he loves the poor. He loves the vulnerable. He's their father. He's their provider. He's their protector. And for us to show partiality against the poor is to miss the heart of God. We see that God is not partial to anyone throughout all of Scripture. Um, in Deuteronomy 10, 17, and 18, we find Moses saying this to the Israelites. For the, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger and gives him food and clothing. So in Deuteronomy, as in James, we see that the awesomeness and the glory of God and his heart for the poor and the vulnerable together should compel us to, to check our hearts and to correct the partiality that is there. Because partiality and true faith in Jesus are incompatible. Look at verse 2. Uh, James goes on, he describes the scenario of a rich man and a poor man, and, and the illustration goes that the rich man was given the best seat in the house and the poor man was given the worst seat in the house or, or to sit at our feet. And then James asks the question in verse 4, when you do this, have you not shown partiality and become judges with evil thoughts? So that's a question that I hope that we all wrestle with this morning. Have we done this? Do we do this? Are we doing this? Do we show favor for one group and neglect the other? And if we're being honest with ourselves today, then I think to some degree for all of us, the answer is yes. In our flesh, we do that. And we need God's help. Like most sin, partiality tries, uh, it, it starts small and then it takes you further than you want to go. When I was thinking about this, what the, the illustration that popped in my head was, you know, you meet somebody and they, they have something, right? A, a quad or a speedboat or a swimming pool, and you think, oh, man, we got to be friends with them. They have a speedboat. Honey, make a play date. Like, <laughs> let's, let's get this friendship going. Have you guys ever done something like that? I think we all have. 
The main reason that we show partiality, I think, is because we, we aim to benefit from the relationship. But here's the thing. The problem was not that they were being warm and welcoming to the rich people. There's nothing wrong with befriending the family with the speedboat. The problem was the mistreatment and the neglection of the poor. The problem when we befriend the family with the speedboat is only there if we're ignoring our other brothers and sisters in the faith. Again, this whole passage comes is building on James 1, 27, that pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So it's mandated as Christians that we not only reject the immorality of the world, but we also love and care for the poor. And to neglect doing that is to ignore Jesus' teaching and God's command. So as I was studying for this passage, I was naturally kind of reflecting on how are we doing with this as a church family, just our little microcosm here at Calvary Chapel South. Do we, do we show partiality? Do we show partiality for the rich? Do we, do we neglect the poor? And what popped into my mind right away was the community meal. And I'm so grateful for people like the Migels and people like the Leahys before them and many others who have led our church in this direction of, of caring for the poor and showing God's heart to the poor. It's interesting to me that in James, his illustration puts so much emphasis on the seating arrangement of the rich and the poor, because I know at the beginning of the community meal, 10, 15 years ago, whatever that was, that has always and still is a, a focus, a seating arrangement. You see, it probably is more efficient to set it up like a traditional um, soup kitchen, buffet line kind of a thing, but instead, the leadership has been intentional to uh, have round tables where the guests come and they, they sit and, and the table has a tablecloth and in the middle is the centerpiece and there's a three-course meal served to them by, by servers like, like in a restaurant. And not only that, there's a, there's a table host. Some of you have served in this capacity to sit and talk and, and eat with our guests. And it's all done like this uh, in order to show dignity and show honor to those in our community who have less. And then, of course, every time the gospel is shared and, and they're invited to be a part of the church family. And then I also thought of Bob Robinson. Some of you remember Bob. This is a brother in our church family who uh, was homeless, and some of you invited him to, be, to come during a service, and he was welcomed into our church family, and he was discipled by our pastors, and he joined some of your small groups, and, and we got to be a part of and, and witness this trans transformation in his life that, that God was doing. And eventually we filmed Bob's testimony. We've played it here on a Sunday morning. And um, Bob has since moved away, be closer with family, but we still receive, uh, Kevin, I think, still receives handwritten notes, really encouraging notes from Bob. And then I also thought of all the, all the things going on with We Love Kent and the distri distribution of, of food to people in our community. And, and all these things, they encouraged my heart when I pondered this question of of how are we doing. And I'm so grateful for our church family and just the example that many, many of you are in this area. But of course, I don't kid myself to think that we've arrived at anything because I know my own heart and I've seen times that we've fallen short and we have shown partiality. Towards the rich, sure, but also there's, there's lots of ways that we can show partiality or the flip side of that coin, which is discrimination or, or prejudice. 
And, and this happens with wealth. It happens with, with social status or positions of, of authority. It happens with ethnicity and race, age, gender, political affiliation. And like I said, the list goes on. Whenever we make a judgment about someone based on outward appearance, we've shown partiality, even if it's in our hearts, just in our thoughts. We've shown partiality, and by doing so, we've once again become transgressors of God's perfect law. So God's desire for us is to look past outward appearance and try as best we can to see people as he sees people. And we know from 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord does not see as man sees, for, God, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God looks at the heart, and so should we. Amen? Imagine, you remember that video of, of all these churches in the Pacific Northwest? Just think of the church families that they represent, thousands of people. Imagine if we all, the testimony that we would have, if we all just stop judging the book by the cover, if we all just set our preconceived ideas aside long enough to make a new friend, if we, if we just put away stereotypes for a bit and, and uh, just, I thought of the phrase, love at first sight. If, we just, if that was our go-to, love at first sight, maybe that sounds idealistic. Of course, I mean brotherly love, not romantic love. That would be problematic. <laughs> but brotherly love, if that was our starting place, in every interaction, with every neighbor, with every barista, with every person on the street, with everybody in this room that you don't know yet, if that was our starting place, can you imagine the testimony we'd have? May we become less and less concerned with outward appearance as we become more and more concerned with the fruits of the Spirit, with love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Partiality and true faith in Jesus are incompatible. Let's look at the next section here, James 2, 5 through 7. To be rich in faith is greater than to be rich in wealth. James goes on in verse 5, again, reminding us that even though what he's saying may hurt a little bit, it's coming from a place of love, from a family member as a brother in Christ. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble, that noble name by which you are called? So James here asks three rhetorical questions. The first one is about the rich. The second two are about the poor. But all of them are intended to persuade the reader that what's going on here is wrong. We know from the other texts that what was probably happening is the wealthy merchants and landowners, they were, they were taking land from the poor and then they were dragging them into court where with their wealth and with their position and their status, they could win the case and steal the land from the poor. And James says, why? He's pleading, why are you showing honor and preference towards these wealthy unbelievers who blaspheme the, blaspheme the name of Jesus and, show, and, and steal from the poor? And I think the answer is probably pretty simple. It's because they want what the poor or they want what the rich have. They want abundance. They want wealth. They want uh, riches, prosperity. And maybe aligning themselves with the rich may help them get there. So that's why the first question that James asks here in verse 5 packs such a punch. He says, has, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom? James is not inferring here that being poor automatically makes you righteous 
and neither is he saying that being wealthy automatically makes you wicked. What James is saying is that God's economy is radically different than the world's economy. Amen? From the Sermon on the Mount, which James is drawing on from quite a bit, he, he says in Matthew 5, 3, Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the poor are not blessed because they're poor. The poor are blessed because they've responded to Jesus in their poverty, having little or nothing to hold them back. This verse isn't necessarily referring to people who are poor monetarily. It's referring to uh, those who are poor in, in spirit or humble in spirit. When we have money and we have our health and we have stability and abundance in our life, that's often, not always, but often when the devil can get in there and, and work to convince us that we are self-sufficient and that we are without need for Jesus. And then when we don't have much, when we're struggling to pay the bills or our health is taken away or life is just tough, that is often when we humble ourselves and we grow richer in our faith. This made me think of my friend David who recently passed away uh, with lung cancer. In his testimony video, which, which we've played here, um, he says something that I think will probably always stick with me. Um, he's talking about, because David was a big, strong guy, and he's talking about his, his strength and his, his health declining, and he said, at some point, trust in God became the only option. He said, in, in, in some ways, trust in God became the only option. He'd come to the end of himself, probably multiple times, come to the end of himself, and decided that the best option, really the only option, was to look to Jesus. David was poor in spirit, but rich in faith. And whether you're rich, or you're poor, or you're healthy, or you're sick, to be rich in faith is better than to be rich with wealth. There's another part of chapter 1 that James is building on with this discussion of faith and with the poor and the rich. Last week, as Pastor Kevin talked about the testing of our faith and trials and, and temptations. We read in James 1, 9 through 11, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. So James seems to be saying here that being, being poor and being rich can become enormous trials when it comes to our faith. And he's, he's encouraging those who are poor to boast in the fact that, that through their faith in Christ, they're elevated to a place of heirs to the kingdom. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Then the encouragement to the rich is to glory in his humiliation. In other words, to recognize that all he has comes from God and that he's to humble himself at, to the place of a, of a steward of what God has given him. And then to use the riches to build the kingdom of God because for no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. Everything except for the kingdom of God will fade away. There are many warnings throughout the scriptures when it comes to riches. We never find that it's wrong. In fact, uh, Pastor Kevin last week said the, the pursuit of wealth is, is not wrong. But, the, but riches can and do easily become obstacles in our faith. Perhaps you're familiar with the rich young ruler who, in talking to Jesus, Jesus said to him, Go sell, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. And come, follow me. The offer of a lifetime, really, from Jesus 
to follow him. To be, it's the same offer his disciples took him up on. But this, this man's response was different. Matthew tells us he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. We pick that up in Matthew 19.23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. It's not just difficult for the largest land mammal in that region to go through the tiniest opening that you find in your household. It's laughable. It's ridiculously impossible. And that's Jesus' point. By the grace of God, the impossible becomes possible. So the problem with the rich young ruler, the problem with the the, um, oppressive wealthy people in our text today, and, and the problem perhaps with some of us is that with our wealth, with our stability, with our prosperity, becomes, becomes this sense of self-sufficiency where we're more easily deceived into thinking that we're not in need of the grace of God. And of course, that kind of thinking is foolish. And we're fools if we continue to let that thinking creep back in again and again. The only remedy for that is to get our eyes on Jesus and his grace, which make it possible for us all to be saved. Look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. So it's far better to be rich in faith than to be rich with wealth. And nobody demonstrated that better than Jesus. Amen. Let's continue with this last section in our our passage, James 2, 8 through 13. Imitate the love and mercy of God. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the law according to the scriptures, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin, and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. So James gives us two very clear, very simple options here. Love your neighbor, and you do well. Or show partiality, and you sin, and are a transgressor of the law. I love it. So simple, so black and white, especially for those of us that tend to look for the gray areas and the loopholes, right? For example, some of us might try to justify our partiality in the name of love. We might say, look, it's not that bad. I'm just showing partiality to this group of people because I'm loving them, like the Bible tells me to, okay? I'm loving them. Uh, They happen to just look and think like I do, but I'm really just focused on loving them. Yeah, I haven't had a positive interaction with anybody who looks or thinks or acts differently than I do in weeks, but that's because I'm really focused on these guys. That kind of thinking isn't going to fly with James. If you want to fulfill the royal law, you love your neighbor without partiality. You love your rich neighbor and your poor neighbor. You love your Democrat neighbor and you love your Republican neighbor. You love your mask-wearing neighbor and your not-mask-wearing neighbor. And you love your neighbor who looks like you and your neighbor who looks nothing like you. You do it without partiality. That's how you fulfill the royal law. Simple, right? Paul and James are on the same page with this. Paul writes in Romans 13, 8 through 10, Owe no one, to, owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall, shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, are all, all are summed in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then he goes on, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Partiality does. Partiality is harmful. Partiality is harmful to the ones you're showing partiality against and to the ones you're showing partiality for. When we show partiality, we don't see people the way God sees people. We see people the way the world sees people. And we begin to treat people like obstacles or vehicles. When we elevate someone over someone else, because we stand to gain something by the relationship, we, we, we're using this person as a vehicle in hopes to, that they can take us where we want to go. Or if we neglect someone in favor of someone else, we're treating this person like an obstacle in the way of something that we want. This kind of behavior is so prevalent in the world, is it not? It's not only uh, accepted, but in some arenas it's encouraged and uh, and uplifted in order to, to get ahead. Sometimes it's expected. But the church is supposed to be different, amen? The church has to be different. To see people as obstacles or vehicles is, is to fail at God's commandment to love our neighbor as ourself. It's to ignore that every person, every person on the planet is created in God's glorious image. And to show partiality, verse 9, is to sin and to be convicted by the law as transgressors. Verse 10, For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. In other words, if you're guilty of one, you're guilty of all. And we don't get to pick and choose what, what we think are God's commandments that we need to obey, and God's commandments that we're okay to neglect. We know from Matthew 5, again, the Sermon on the Mount, to hate your brother makes you a murderer at heart and therefore a transgressor of the law. Or to look at someone with lust makes you an adulterer at heart and therefore a transgressor of the law. So we quickly begin to realize that on the day of judgment, when we stand before God, we are all going to be found guilty and in need of forgiveness. This is why we praise God for his mercies that are new every morning. I know that this morning, most of you, or at least many of you, are prob have probably already come to this point in your, in your life where you've recognized your need before God and that you've broken his laws. You've become poor in spirit and confessed your sin and, and you've received that forgiveness and that grace and that mercy from God that he gives to us through his son who died on the cross. And now as sons and daughters of God the Father, we've become heirs to his kingdom. But now, having, having faith in Jesus, each day, every day, we're, we're faced with choice after choice after choice on whether or not we're going to put our faith into action and put our faith to work, or we're simply going to be hearers of the word only and not doers. So as we begin to close the message today, James gives us as believers some very clear instructions here in verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, so speak and so do, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one 
who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So speak and so do, our words and our actions. We should make choices about what we do and the words that we say based off the fact that we know that we're going to one day stand before God and give an account for every word and for every deed. We should take comfort knowing that the law of liberty that we see here refers to the fulfillment of the law by Jesus, that the gospel, the good news, is that we're forgiven and freed from condemnation through his sacrifice. But we should also be warned that if we've genuinely received God's mercy and put our faith in Jesus, that we're expected, it necessitates that we give mercy and show mercy to others. Again, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 14, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. And love covers a multitude of sin. So love your neighbor as yourself. May we go out from this place today being imitators of God's love and God's mercy in every interaction with every person without partiality. And may we be compelled to do so, inspired and enabled to do so by the love and the mercy shown to us by God our Father. Amen? Let me close by reading Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful for your love. We're so grateful for your mercy. We give you thanks for your mercy that is new every morning. We need it, Lord. We confess that we've shown partiality. We have partiality in our hearts, and we need your help. God, may we go out from this place supernaturally filled with your love and your mercy, that we would interact with people on a different level, God, a level that's not humanly possible without your help. By your Holy Spirit, we would treat people with love and dignity and respect and see them as you see them. Created in your image, God, you love every creation that you've made. Help us, Lord, we pray. I thank you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.